All right, now please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6, verses 1 to 4. Genesis 6, verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can study your word, the holy and righteous word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thank you that it is the word of life, it is the word of truth, it is the word of our salvation. There is no other way. We thank you, Father, that you've gathered us to study this word. Now we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us, lead us into all truth. May you build us up in the faith, encourage us to walk in righteousness and truth in everything that we pursue. We ask you to be present with us, and we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, we have an introduction to the flood. The flood will be explained beginning in this chapter, and then in the actual flood in chapters 7 and 8, the end of the flood in chapter 8, and the aftermath of that in chapter 9. That's what we have in chapters 6 to 9. The great flood, the flood of Noah, the great deluge, it's known by different names. That's what we have here in chapter 6 to 9. And all of this is after the time of Adam and before the time of Abraham, in terms of significant people of the Bible. This is basically an account of the time of Noah. And in this introduction, verses 1 to 4, it tells us how bad things were. Not only verses 1 to 4, but we'll also see verses 5 to 12 will tell us how bad things were. And this is the reason that justifies God inflicting the earth with his severe punishment. It was severely sinful, therefore it needed to be severely punished. The first example of sin has to do with verses 1 to 4. There are a few ways in which interpreters have understood this passage. The first few ways that I'll explain, which I do not believe, I believe in the last one that I will explain, and I'll give you more details about that. The various interpretations of this. Some have said that this is, in verses 1 to 4, sons of God and daughters of men, has to do with the line of Seth, which was just mentioned in chapter 5, from Adam and Seth all the way to Noah. The line of Seth equals the sons of God. The daughters of men equals the line of Cain, Cain, the son of Adam, the Cain who murdered Abel, his brother. That is a righteous line and a wicked line, a godly line and an ungodly line. The, these are the two interpretations or the two ways in which it has been understood. Sons of God equals the line of Seth, the godly line, daughters of men, the line of Cain. And therefore, the sin would have been intermarriage between godly and ungodly people, or believers with unbelievers. That would be the sin of verses 1 to 4. Another interpretation is to take sons of God to be nobles or kings, mighty men, those who are rulers and govern the people. They are the sons of God, and then the daughters of men would be the common women. 
kings marrying commoners, in other words. And, they, and not just marrying them, but seizing them, exploiting them, doing whatever with the common women. That's the second interpretation. A third interpretation is to uh, say that the sons of God, um, these, these would be angels, and the daughters of men would be human women. That is, angels, fallen angels, who have intermarriage with women. And this is the third interpretation. And I believe that this is the correct interpretation of this passage because that would be, of these three interpretations, the most severe of the sins. All of the, the previous ones would have been sins, but this would be the most severe of sins. And it's not presented here arbitrarily. It's presented here as an indication of how low and how bad things were in the time of Noah, which justified God bringing the great flood upon the whole world in order to destroy and to get rid of this widespread evil. That's one reason why I believe so. But another reason has to do with this expression, sons of God and daughters of men. Sons of God and daughters of men, which phrase sons of God appears only a few times in the Old Testament. It appears in Job chapter 1, verse 6, Job chapter 2, verse 1, and in Job 38, verse 7. Job chapter 1, verse 6. In each of these cases in Job, we'll see that they have to be angels. They cannot be mighty rulers. They cannot be godly people. They have to be angels. Job 1, verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. They present themselves before the Lord. Job 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And finally, Job 38, verse 7. 38, 7. Uh, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. In this passage, Job 38, 1 to 7, God's asking Job, where was he? when the earth's foundation was laid, way back in Genesis chapter 1. Where were you, Job? You weren't around, so you should not speak up and you should not presume upon your circumstances. And he says that the morning stars, and they are equated with sons of God in verse 7. The morning stars, another term for angels, sons of God, another term for angels, they were there, they sang and they shouted for joy when God laid the foundation of the earth. So these instances of the term sons of God, which we find in Genesis 6, 1 to 4, and in those references in the book of Job, they, if we're to take them together, would indicate that they are angels and fallen angels because they are sinning here in Job uh, or in Genesis chapter 6. Now, one might say, well... The Old Testament doesn't have angels, or the Old Testament saints did not know of angels, or angels were later in the Old Testament, not early in the Old Testament. There are some people who think that way, and they object to the thought that there could or would have been an understanding of angels this early in the book of Genesis. However, we have to observe Genesis 3, verse 1. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. This serpent is Satan, according to Revelation 12.9 and 12.15 and Revelation 20, verse 2. This serpent is the devil, Satan. So he is the chief of all of the fallen angels. He is the ruler of the angels, the ruler of the demons. Furthermore, Genesis 3.24 says, So he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. In Genesis 3.24, right there, Right there, when Adam and Eve fell and God expelled them from the garden, he stationed cherubim, which is a plural term in the Hebrew language, which means there were at least two of them right there, at least two of them. So they knew of angels. There was an angel or angels guarding the way to the tree of life so that no one could go there. So angels existed even before Genesis chapter 6, and they were active in the world. In Genesis 3.24, we have good angels. In Genesis 3.1, we have an evil angel or a fallen angel, the devil. Both existed before Genesis 6. Furthermore, examples uh, can be found in Genesis 18 and 19. Genesis 18, 1 to 2 and 22. And Genesis 19, 1 to 11 and verse 16. Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the Lord appeared... To him by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Then verse 22 says, Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. It says in chapter 18, 1 and 2 that there were three men who appeared. And in 18, 1, it says the Lord appeared. And in 18, 22, the men turned away and the Lord was still there, which means two of the men turned away and went down toward Sodom, proceeded ahead in order to go to Sodom. And the Lord and Abraham have this dialogue at the, at the end of chapter 18. Then chapter 19, verse 1, notice... Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Lot met these two angels who proceeded ahead of the Lord, and he knew them to be angels. And the text actually says by 19 verse 1, the two angels. And we know what happened in this passage in Genesis 19, 1 to 11, the men of Sodom, they wanted to have sexual relations with these two angels that visited Lot and his house, correct? They wanted to have sexual relations, which means they had bodies. Angels in their normal state do not have bodies. Jesus said in Luke 24, 36 to 39, handle me and see that a spirit that I handle and see that I have flesh and bones. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So a spirit, an angel, they are invisible, intangible, non-physical beings. They are spirits like the wind. And yet they can assume a body. They can assume a body. That's why in Genesis 19, 
the men of Sodom wanted to sodomize them, have sexual relations with them. And in fact, they ate with Lot even before that um, temptation occurred, before that incident occurred, they ate with Lot. And in Genesis 18, they ate with Abraham and Sarah. So they consumed food, and in chapter 19, they were objects of potential sodomy. Therefore, it should not alarm us or surprise us that spirit beings, angels, can interact in human affairs. In fact, Hebrews 13, verse 2, Hebrews 13, 2 says, let, let us show hospitality to strangers, for in so doing, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Let us show hospitality to strangers. He's alluding to these incidents in Genesis. Let us show hospitality to strangers, for in so doing, some have entertained angels without knowing it. That is, when we show hospitality to them, they will eat with us, they'll sleep in our house, correct? They have physical bodies, they will have those physical necessities or needs while they are temporarily in their physical bodies. Therefore, when we go back and understand Genesis chapter 6, it should not surprise us that the sons of God or fallen angels could or did assume bodies for the sake of sinning. <coughs> Furthermore, cross-reference our passage to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. 2 Peter 2:4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And he continues with his examples. In verse 4, this verse could be taken in one of two ways. Either Peter is making reference to the original fall of angels, which is implied in Genesis 3, because Satan is there tempting Adam and Eve in the garden, or he is referring to the time of Noah, those angels that sinned, and God judged them, because right after he mentions those angels in verse 4, he mentions Noah, which is the sequence we have in Genesis chapter 6. We have the introduction to the flood, and then the flood of Noah's day. This is the same sequence that Peter follows in verses 4 and 5. And one more place, and that is Jude 6. Jude 6. We'll actually read verses 6 and 7. <coughs> and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Here we see Jude mentioning the angels and then the Sodomites of verse 7. Angelic sinners and Sodomite sinners in verse 7. And notice the connection he makes in verse 7. Since they, in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, 
are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Well, who are the these? Who are the these of verse 7? They and these of verse 7. Is he not comparing the angelic mixture? They should not be mixing with humans in sexual ways. And in the same way, the men of Sodom should not be mixing with other men in sexual ways. They both transgressed their bounds. The men of Sodom should have had relations with their wives in marriage, of course, wives assumes marriage, in marriage, and then the angels should not have had relations with humans at all. They should have kept within their proper abode. This is some of the evidence for why we could and should take Genesis 6, sons of God and daughters of men, to be angelic, fallen angelic creatures who assume bodies and intermarry with women upon the earth. Now, this is what we see happening, and this then would be a very detestable thing, just like the men of Sodom was a very detestable thing, and it called for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In the same way here, if they are doing this, and it is widespread, because notice it says in verse 1, when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So they did according to their evil will, and they did this with the multiplication of all the women who are on the earth. It doesn't say which, what number of women with whom they did this, but apparently they did it a whole lot, a whole lot that it was widespread. And further notice verse 2, whomever they chose, whatever they desired to do, this reminds us of Genesis 3, verse 6, because this is what Adam and Eve did. Genesis 3, 6. They saw something that was good, but was forbidden. Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. This choosing is a wrong choosing. It's an evil kind of choice that they made. Verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Lord speaks. The Lord says. He decides the following. What he says is in verse 3. My spirit shall not strive with man forever. My spirit. When God says my spirit, he means his Holy Spirit. Right. His Holy Spirit will not strive or contend with man forever. He will not fight with man forever. He will not be at war with man forever. Meaning, he's not going to plead with them forever. There will come a time when he punishes them, when he judges them, when his, when his patience runs out. When it expires, when his patience expires, then his punishment rises to the surface. That's what he's talking about. We might ask, my spirit, why does he say my spirit? Can 
And should we believe that the Holy Spirit was in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit was actively involved in the life of the people in the Old Testament? The answer is yes. He was present there literally. He was present literally as Spirit, the Holy Spirit, invisible Spirit. He was there, but He was also there in terms of exhortation. He was there in order to exhort the people by the Word of God, by the messengers of God, and in the messengers of God, to exhort them to repent of their sins and to walk in righteousness, to believe in the gospel and turn away from their sins. He was there doing that kind of work. We'll see that in just a moment. But first, his identity. His identity should not be a surprise to us. Genesis 1 verse 2, it says, And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. It says the Spirit of God is there. Spirit of God. Not wind of God, not breath of God, not some kind of inanimate force. No, no active force, as Jehovah's Witnesses say. Active force of Jehovah God. No, active force, impersonal wind, impersonal power. That is not who the Holy Spirit is. He is personal and he possesses deity. He has a divine nature. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. When Ananias and Sapphira lied to the apostles, it says they lied to the Spirit of the Lord, and it says they lied to God. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and when they lied to the Holy Spirit, they lied to God. One does not lie, cannot lie, to an inanimate object. We don't lie to rocks. We don't lie to trees. We don't lie to our breath. We don't lie to the wind. No, we lie to personal beings. And in this case, a divine personal being. Acts chapter, four, uh, Acts chapter 5, verses th- uh, 3 and 4. Furthermore, he's called the Lord in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. The Holy Spirit is called the Lord. So this is the Holy Spirit we have in Genesis 1, verse 2, and Genesis 6, verse 3. The Spirit of God. Furthermore, he is known as the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 63. In Isaiah chapter 63, he is known as the Holy Spirit. 63.10 But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. Then as people remember the days of old of Moses, where is he who brought them up out of the sea? With the shepherds of his flock, where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? And further in verse 14, Isaiah 63, 14, As the cattle which go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest, so you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. He is known by these various terms in the Old Testament, just as he is in the New Testament. This is the Holy Spirit who is at work, in the people of the Old Testament. Now, what was his role, and in what sense does it mean, my spirit shall not strive with man forever? Strive with man or fight against man, have a conflict with man forever. In what sense does it mean that? To understand, let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 20. 
In Nehemiah 9.20, we'll see the following. And you gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. He gave them his good spirit and his manna and water. So spiritual provisions and physical provisions miraculously provided. Verse 30, how and in what way specifically the spiritual? 9 verse 30, however, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. There he says specifically that God admonished the people by his spirit through his prophets. The prophets preached the word of the spirit. The prophets were empowered by the spirit. The spirit was present in the midst of the people to convict them, to illumine them, to show them the way, to make them understand what the Bible means, what the preacher means when he preaches. This is the spirit that was admonishing them the same is said in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 12. And they made their hearts like flint, so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Zechariah is one of the last prophets of the Old Testament, towards the end of the Old Testament period, and he's speaking of the former ones, all those who preceded him. The ones who preceded him were sent by the Lord, by his Spirit, through the former prophets. The Spirit was present and active, admonishing the people through the prophets. And we also see in verse 12 that because they would not listen, therefore the wrath of God came on the people. Because the people would not listen in the time of Moses, the wrath of God came on the people. And that's the same as what he means in Genesis 6, 1-4. Because they would not listen, the wrath of God is coming upon the people of the earth. That's why he says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. I'm not going to go on and on and on with this. I give them some time. I am patient with them. But then my time of punishment is coming because my spirit has been fighting against this, this rebellious people, but now he's not going to fight anymore. Furthermore, we see in verse 3, Genesis 6, 3. Why will this not last forever? Because he also is flesh. Man is flesh. You know this expression, the flesh, that the Apostle Paul is more known to use. The Apostle Paul in Galatians and Romans and 1 Corinthians, he speaks of the flesh. When he says the flesh, presumably he's getting it from a passage like Genesis 6 verse 3. Man, in his very nature his basic substance in terms of his spiritual and moral standing before God, he is flesh. He's not spiritual, he is fleshly. He's not godly, he is carnal. He is worldly-minded, 
He's earthly minded. He doesn't think and care about the things above, about eternal things, about heavenly things. This is what, what he is called here, because he also is flesh. Man is flesh. Man is steeped in his sin. He is corrupt in his nature. This is what the Bible is saying here. He's flesh. He's carnal. He's depraved, corrupt. Because this is the case, and because the Spirit will not fight forever, now it's time for punishment. The Spirit has done what he is called to do. That's his ministry, to proclaim the truth through his servants, the prophets. But also, men are guilty for not responding to what the Holy Spirit says because he's flesh. He's guilty. In other words, God is making sure we understand that God has done what he desires to do and what he ordains to do, what is good for the people, to hear this word by the Holy Spirit. But now, when the punishment comes, it's man's fault. Man is guilty. He is culpable and will be held responsible because he is corrupt flesh. Then, God says, Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. That is, yes, Punishment is coming, but I will give mankind 120 years to repent. He gave mankind 120 years to repent. He's not speaking of the longevity of individual men. He's speaking of the earth in those days in the time of Noah before the flood comes. He's not speaking of the individual lifespan of men. That men, the longest that they will ever live from now on will be 120 years. That's not what he intends here. We actually see several examples of quite the opposite in, in the later uh, parts of the Bible, in, in Genesis and Exodus, and even an example is there in Second Chronicles 24 of, of Jehoiada the priest. So these examples are there throughout the Old Testament. God did not mean that the oldest a man would live would be to be 120 years, but he's talking about the lifespan of the earth at that time, which means that God declared this word, this, he decided this when Noah was uh, 480 years old. When Noah was 480 years old, God had determined this, because we know from Genesis 7, Genesis 7, verse 6, now Noah was 600 years old, when the flood of water came upon the earth. He was 600 when the flood came, and it lasted for over a year. And he was 500 when he had his three sons. Genesis 5, 32. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Those are his three sons about the age of 500. So God determined even before he had sons to destroy the earth, and then 20 years later, Noah had these three sons. This is the sequence of events here. Before we proceed to verse 4, in verse 3, there's a couple more points to make. To corroborate what we said about the flesh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 
verse 14. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. That one phrase right there is just like Genesis 6, 3. My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. For they are foolish, and then the explanation as to why it doesn't happen. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Because man considers these things foolishness, he does not understand them, and they are spiritually appraised, spiritually judged. Therefore, it does not come into their heart. They do not receive it. An example of this lack of reception is in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Acts 7, 51. Stephen to his accusers. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the Holy, the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. These men are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. They don't have a new heart. They are just fleshly people. That's why they resist the Holy Spirit, and they do just as their predecessors do. And they murder people just as their predecessors murder righteous people, and even the righteous one, the ultimate righteous one, Christ himself. Even though they have the law, ordained by angels, they still did not and would not keep the law. And furthermore, we have 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter 3, 20. Speaking of the time of Noah, who once were disobedient, the spirits were once disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Eight persons were brought safely through the water. God waited patiently those many generations, and even for that 120 year period, He waited patiently while He was constructing the ark. That's what He means here in Genesis chapter 6 that He will give Him 120 years. Patiently wait for that amount of time. Then finally, in Genesis 6, verse 4, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Who are these Nephilim? The Nephilim. Your Bible may say giant. Nephilim or giant. And Nephilim, according to the original language, means fallen ones means fallen ones. Though it is clear that it means fallen ones, it's unclear in what sense they are fallen. Are, are they fallen as, as fallen angels? That's the way I take it. Are they fallen angels? They fell from heaven and they sinned. Is this the way in which we should take it? Or are they fallen in some other sense? Fallen in, in some other sense, a moral sense 
or that because they transgressed and married uh, across the lines, uh, such as kings marrying commoners, are they fallen in that sense or in some other way? I think it's most plain and, and clear that Nephilim, meaning fallen ones, has to do with fallen angels. And he says, they were on the earth in those days and also afterward. And also afterward. Why afterward? Notice Numbers 13, 33. In the book of Numbers, chapter 13, remember that in this chapter, Moses sent 12 spies into the land of Canaan. Ten spies came back with a bad report and they demoralized the rest of the army of 600,000 soldiers. And what was it that bothered them? Numbers 13, 33. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are a part of the Nephilim. And because, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. He's, they say, we saw the Nephilim. Now this is after the flood, and this is in the time of Moses. Moses lived about 1500 years, uh, uh, 1500 BC, and Noah in the flood was about 2350 BC. 2350 BC to 1500 BC. So much time has passed, and th this is why Moses tells us in Genesis 6 they were on the earth then, but also afterward, because they are here in Numbers 13:33. And other examples of them being in existence are in the Old Testament. Um, but let's just look at examples in the more uh, close proximity to the, in the book of Genesis. Genesis 14, verse 5. Genesis 14 and verse 5. It says, And in the fourteenth year of Kedar, Laomer, and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Amim in Shaveh, Kiriathaim. Here we have three groups, Rephaim, Zuzim, and Amim. If we cross-reference this verse, Genesis 14, 5, with Deuteronomy 2, 10 to 12, Deuteronomy 2, 10 to 12, Deuteronomy 2, 20 to 22, and Deuteronomy 3, 11 to 13, we see that these are different groups of these Nephilim. Different groups of the Nephilim. Further, Genesis 15, Genesis 15, verse 20. It says, And the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim. The Rephaim. The Rephaim are in one of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, and God tells Abraham that his descendants will have this land that is possessed by these various Canaanite peoples. And one of them one of those groups is the Rephaim. Rephaim, and it's instructive to note that the term Rephaim also is a plural term. Whenever, or usually in the Old Testament, when a Hebrew word is transliterated in English and it ends in I-M, it's a plural ending. And the translators have chosen to just transliterate it, that is literally give us the consonantal and vowelic transliteration into English instead of pluralizing it with the plural S as we typically do. So 
Rephaim has two meanings, depending on the context. It can mean spirits, spirits or shades. Shades, another term for spirits or demons. It can mean spirits or it could mean giants. Your translations will translate it variously in the different contexts, either as spirits or as <coughs> giants. And that's the same as Genesis 6, verse 4. The Nephilim is this main or initial broad category, and then we have the different other subcategories of these Nephilim that were on the earth afterwards. And they had children, and they are called mighty men who were of old men of renown. Now, men of renown does not mean uh, men of good repute, but men of ill repute. They, these are notorious people. They make a name for themselves, similar to the Tower of Babel, seeking to make a name for themselves, or even like um, it was in, in Genesis chapter 10 with Nimrod. Nimrod, in Genesis 10 verse 9, says, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And this mighty hunter before the Lord means not that he was a godly hunter before the Lord, but an evil one and a ruthless one. He was an evil man and likely the founder of some of these cities that we, um, ancient cities of Mesopotamia. So that's what it means in this case, I think, in Genesis 6 verse 4. They were mighty men, and men of renown of ill repute. That's who we have here. So, if they were actually evil angels intermarrying, and if God's Spirit was preaching through the prophets, like Noah was a prophet, according to 2 Peter 2.5, he was a preacher of righteousness. If that is the case, through Noah and through others who lived at the time, then God said, I've had enough. The, the wickedness is widespread. It's severe. And now I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.